I'm Vic Singh, and you're listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that breaks down every episode of The Sopranos one at a time. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get shows. And as always, thank you for listening and being a part of this amazing journey with us. So this project continues to get more surreal by the minute. This is a conversation I had with Jamie Lynn Sigler in studio. Jamie played Meadow Soprano on the show. Twelve months ago, I was sitting at my kitchen table trying to map out how this show could even exist. And now I'm here talking to you amazing listeners about a special conversation I got to share with Jamie. That still quite hasn't baked in yet for me, even as I say it now. Jamie was so kind and so generous with her time. She openly went down memory lane, and we talked about it all. Being cast on the show expectations, relationships, living and working with MS, and much, much more. Towards the end, I asked her what her favorite book was. She said The Alchemist. I paused for a moment and wanted to say this, but didn't. So I'm fixing that and doing it now. The Alchemist is one of the reasons this pod exists and is also a very important book to me. In fact, I believe... I've discussed it on the pod with Naya and John. Getting to sit down with Jamie was a serious marker towards my own personal legend, which if you've read the book, you know what I'm talking about. So thank you, Jamie, and the friends and family that helped me along the way to get to this point. Okay, thanks for letting me get that out of the way. So now, here it is, my conversation with Jamie Lynn Sigler. Jamie, thank you for being here. My pleasure. And for going down memory lane. I, I, that's what I mean. My pleasure. This is exciting for yeah, me. Yeah, uh, you have no idea. So uh, <laughs> this it's three pages of notes. I'm going to bang through this. Do it. Uh, cut down from, uh, it's an embarrassing number. <laughs> um, so let's go way back. How did you first become involved with the show? Mm-hmm. What were you doing immediately before? And how did it just come together? Okay. So I was 15, 16 years old, um, living on Long Island. I had done musical theater from the age of nine until then and was doing community theater on Long Island, summer stock, national tours, like musical theater was life. But I did also have a balance. I went to public school on Long Island, so I was able to really, you know, be a normal kid, but also pursue a passion. And around the time when Sopranos was happening, I had auditioned, actually auditioned for my first television show ever. And I got really close and I screen tested and I didn't get it. And I was so upset. And because it was my first, you know, experience with that. And also at the time, there weren't many musical theater roles for teens. So obviously I was very creatively frustrated at the age of 15 and I had never gone to sleepaway camp like all of my friends. So I decided I was going to go to sleepaway camp. Um, I was going to be a CIT at this camp called Pontiac in upstate New York. And that was going to be my summer. And maybe two weeks before I left, I got a call from my manager saying, you know, HBO is starting to do television shows now. And they're looking for a 16-year-old Italian-looking girl. And the show is called Sopranos. Maybe it's musical, which is obviously what I assumed as well. And she said, I, you know, I think you could pass for Italian. Do you want to go? And I was like, no, I'm going to camp, but thank you. She's like, all right, well, like, you know, 
doesn't hurt to just meet another casting director. And I was like, all right. You know, I just kind of went in with that attitude. Like, I'm never going to get this. This is just an experience to be in front of somebody else. And I'm going to camp. I'm stoked. And I went in and read. And it was a, it was a scene with Meadow fighting with Carmela about wanting to go on the ski trip with Hunter. I didn't think anything of it. There was not really, I didn't have a cell phone at that time. So when I got back home to Long Island from the city, there was a message on my answering machine that they wanted me to come back again the next day. Whereas today you'd probably get like a text. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah I used to get like faxed my sides and things like that. So I was going to, so I, then I was going back the next day to the city to read for David Chase and I did the same thing. And Maybe I was a little intimidated because now there was, like, another person in the room. He wasn't there the first time? He was not there. It was just your jam walk in the first time. So now the second time, there's David. Again, did the best I could. Leaving. Go home. I have another message. You need to come back again tomorrow for the producers. So now I go back, and now the waiting room is filled with AJs and Meadows. So then, you know, when you start, like, gaining momentum that maybe you're going to get a role like now you start caring about it and getting a little nervous about it um but I remember telling myself you know just do the same thing you've been doing I was very experienced in fighting with my mother about things I wanted to do that she wasn't going to let me do and that's all there was to it um so I went in and now the room was bigger there was probably like eight people in the room I remember Eileen Landris was there and I can't remember any of the other people, but Eileen, David, Georgian, and then a few others. And then after that audition, um, they wanted to screen test me. But their one note was I was too tan, which go figure, because obviously— Was it during the summer? It was during the summer, yes. And um, I don't know. So I stayed—I had a week until I was going to be screen testing. So I, like, had to stay away from the sun. I'd put, like, retin-A on my face. Like, all these crazy things. And when I went to screen test, it was at the HBO offices in Manhattan. And no one was cast yet. They were still reading Tony's. They were reading Melfi's. They were reading Carmela's. So they had—I remember John Tamiglia, who played Artie Bucco, read Tony with me. And it was two girls. It was myself and another actress named Christy Carlson Romano. And simultaneously at this time, I was auditioning for a Broadway musical called Parade that I really, really, really wanted. And I was close to as well. Which at that time would have been like a way bigger deal, you know, because way bigger deal. Nobody knew about The Sopranos or what it was going to be. Exactly. And HBO, like nobody really thought much about that. It was like the movie channel. Yeah. And so then I read three scenes. I read this scene with Carmela. I read a scene with Tony where he takes her like after volleyball and they go into the church and he tells her about everything. And then to be honest, I can't remember the third. Um, They had seven days per contract to tell me whether I got it or not. And on the sixth night, they called to tell me that I got the part of Meadow. Also, right before that, I found out Christy, the other girl, got the part in Parade. So go figure. Oh, wow. Yeah. Small Isn't that world. crazy? So that's where I was. So then I didn't go to sleepaway camp, obviously, and we shot the pilot that summer. What were your expectations? None. I was um, nervous. I remember my very first day on set. It was the scene where Tony, Carmela, Meadow, and AJ are touring the nursing home for Livia. And... When I showed up, there was a stand-in, which they always have. They have stand-ins that do all the camera and lighting setups for you so that 
once they've gotten all that out of the way, they rehearse for you like another body that's similar to yours, look to yours, height, so that you don't have to like do all that as the actor. You know, you're more precious, I guess. So when I saw a girl rehearsing my scene, I got nervous. I thought, oh, wait, did I not get it yet? Is this like I was so confused. And I remember Robert played AJ. Uh, literally told me everything that whole day. Like, I was like, what's check the gate? He's like, that means that they're, they've got what they needed and they're making sure the camera's good so they can move on. Like, I knew nothing. He was more experienced? Way and- more experienced. He had done tons of commercials. He I had see. done movies. I had never really been on a film set before, other than, like, one day on an indie movie, which went by so fast. I had one line. Like, I, I hadn't, I knew nothing. Right. So I remember at the table read, sorry, right before that, like looking around the table and seeing James Gandolfini and like many people prior to The Sopranos, he was that guy where you're like, oh, he's been in so much stuff. I know that guy. He's so good. Yes. So I remember kind of being excited and I knew who Lorraine Bracco was and just like looking around the table, the like, you know, a lot of these guys were like very authentically Italian mafia. It just was kind of cool. And Robert and I really gravitated towards each other not just because we were the kids but we were just like enamored with the whole experience and everyone and when it was done I remember hearing David Chase say somebody else like nobody's gonna ever want this like it took me forever to get this made like this was so fun you know peace be with you like good luck to you all in the future see you around yeah and so we shot it in July and August and then in November I don't remember if I was in L.A. already or they flew me out here, but they did a screening at the HBO offices here. And I remember David telling my mom, like, I think they're going to make the show. And then that's when we found out, like, maybe a few weeks later in November that we were going to be a series. But we didn't actually start filming until June. Much later. So yeah. almost a whole year. Yeah, we talked about that. Um, and thank you for segueing to my next question. What did your parents think of the show while you were making it? Like, uh, like was the, we're both parents, right? Yeah. So was the content concerning for them? No. They were super supportive? Super supportive. I it. mean, growing up in theater, I mean, you're exposed to a lot. And I was the third child. Like, there was nothing precious about, like, my experience. Got it. They were, Got it. They were stoked for me because I think, they knew that this was my passion. They knew this is something I wanted. They were excited for me. Um, did they have a sense of the gravity of, like, David Chase, HBO, James no. Gandolfini? Did they kind of, no. like, know that world? My dad was very removed from it. My mom was the one that was, like, on set with me all the okay. time. But, I mean, I we were just scared of everybody, you know? I mean, like, it's just, like, you always feel like you could lose your job at any moment, you know? Every, like, I took my mom's lead. We were, like, quiet and kind of kept to ourselves type of thing, you know, until, obviously, I got more comfortable in the show. So talk about your MS diagnosis and how that coincided with the show. Sure. Um, So it was right before I was going to be filming the third season of Sopranos. I had this weird episode where, like, over the course of a couple of days, I started losing sensation in my legs. I was able to walk and move, but, like, they were dead asleep where like if you touch me, I couldn't feel it. It was very strange. I was pins concerned. And needles. Exactly. Like the feeling right before pins and needles, that heaviness. And so I went to the hospital and then next thing I know, I'm in the ICU for 10 days and they can't figure out what's wrong with me. And they threw MS, they threw a bunch of different diagnoses out and ruled all of them out. And during this time, David Chase was coming. Eileen Landris, I remember 
um, Edie Falco came to see me. And I was in the mindset where I was like, I'm 19 years old. I'm fine. Like, I'm going to be fine. This is crazy. And so I was super positive about it. And I remember David saying, like, you have a really big season this year. You know, I have a lot coming up for Meadow, you know. And so they diagnosed me with Lyme's disease. They gave me antibiotics and steroids. And within three weeks, I was up, moving, walking, fine. So film the third season. Everything was fine. And then... As we were filming the fourth season, I started to feel it again. Um, but I was also at a point in my life where I was engaged to my ex-husband manager who um, pushed me a lot to do a lot of things. Like when I wasn't filming, I was at an appearance or singing here or doing that or doing that. And I was so frustrated and tired and overwhelmed that I took that sensation and ran with it. And I was like, I need to go back into the hospital. Kind of being dramatic, but I just need, I didn't know how to tell people I needed a break and it was the only way I knew how. And so when I went into the hospital, I assumed they were just going to give me more antibiotics and I'd be on my way and they diagnosed me with MS. So it was obviously shocking. Did you know what it was? Not what really. I mean, I, I, the little I'd heard about it, I just assumed it always meant like you're just going to end up in a wheelchair. But fortunately, I had a really wonderful neurologist who, right when he gave me the diagnosis, said to me, but I want you to understand that you can have a very healthy, long life. If you were a dancer, I would tell you maybe we need to reconsider your career at some point. But as an actress, nobody won an Oscar for running. So, you know, I don't know how this is going to affect your body, but I can tell you that, you know, we can we can do this. I was also told by an industry doctor that... Um, I shouldn't tell anybody. And so... An industry doctor. So before you start any project, you have to see a doctor and get a physical, which is very minimal. They kind of just like look at you, ask you a bunch of questions and say, yeah, she's healthy. She can do the project. So I was going... I had seen him for the fourth season of the show because we have to do it for every season. And he was... I had said, I just got diagnosed with MS. And he's like, I'm going to pretend you didn't tell me that because just trust me, like they're going to assume that you can't do a lot of stuff and you're 20 years old and you're healthy and, you know, you're diagnosed early and let's just not talk about this. So that's what I did. And that's what made you decide to keep it, you kept Mm -hmm. it inside for Mm -hmm. 15 years? Yeah. Did you tell anybody on the set? After a while, yes. Okay. Um, I think... Was it because, I didn't mean to cut you off, Yeah. was it because you were symptomatic or was it because you felt comfortable telling them and they would keep so, it in confidence? I was going through a divorce at 24, so this is now four years later. I became symptomatic then. Um, I started just having not issues walking or anything, um, like with my bladder where like I, I sometimes couldn't hold it and I'd have to run to the bathroom. So like, you know, if we're saying, okay, let's get ready to shoot. And I'd be like, oh, I'm sorry. I have to go to the bathroom. I'd be like, why didn't you do that 20 minutes ago? Do you know what I mean? Things like that. And then I think going through a divorce, um, the stress of it all, the emotion, and I wasn't telling anybody about that either. It just felt like a lot. And I remember James pulled me aside one day and said like, what's going on? Because also, I think people were commenting, like, on not my acting, but just, like, my my presence on the set. And I seemed out of it. And I wasn't doing, like, the best work that I had always done. And I just, I think because I was always told to, like, keep it a secret and say everything's fine. Keep it a secret and say everything's fine. I was just kind of going along. And I, I was just bursting. I mean, I was 24 years old and dealing with so much on my plate 
that I kind of broke down to him and told him what was going on. And You told him first? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And he was very kind, obviously. Um, and I remember him saying, I'm going to give you my acting coach to work with you because you need to have this be solid for yourself while you deal with everything else. And like, how can, I mean, he, he was such a guy that was like, how can I help? Like, what can I do? And I was like, nothing. Like, I wish I could tell you something, but, you know, thank you. And then also around that time, Edie had been diagnosed with breast cancer and she hadn't been public about it either. She had told the producers and stuff like we didn't even know she was wearing a wig for a while in the show and we didn't even know. And she came to tell me about her breast cancer and then I told her about my MS. So we kind of had our moment there of like sharing things with each other. So your on-screen mom and dad knew first. Yes. Yes. And then It's kind of poetic. Yes. And then I I told Robert, I think around the same time, because he was my best friend and he was young, but now he was like coming to an age where I felt like we could talk about it. Um, And then I told uh, Aida and I told Drea and that was it. That was it. Mm -hmm. So like the the upper rungs, David didn't know, David Chase. No, I was so afraid of losing my job. I totally, I can feel what you're saying. Yeah, I was just, and also too, like I, it would fluctuate like how much I was in the show and out of the show. And I just like, I just was afraid that it was going to affect it, you know? So it just felt better to kind of, and, and I know it sounds like, you know, dramatic of me, but literally the very last time I've ever been able to run was the final scene of Sopranos when I run across the street into the restaurant. Right after that, I lost my ability to run. So I don't know if it was like the universe on my side or whatever it was to kind of get me through the show and physically not have anything be wrong. But that was the very last time. That's amazing. Yeah. I, I, I did read that you haven't run in, in several, several years. Like, yeah, 12 years now. Wow. Yeah. I don't know if it was a written interview or if it was a video interview where you said like the, the feeling of being able to get the release from running. Yeah, is what just you that missed. freedom. Totally, or I mean, even totally. like, you know, with kids, just. Yeah. The fear I have that I won't be able to catch and protect my child. Yeah, yeah. Like, all things like that, you know, are with me all the time. Yeah. Uh, But just that feeling of, because I can remember what it feels like to kind of move in your body. And sometimes, you know, when your body's dictating how and where you move, it can be frustrating, obviously. Since your diagnosis, how much progress has been made in terms of treating MS? Well, look. I think I would be way better off than I am today had I been better with my treatment. I think I rebelled a little bit when I got diagnosed. And because I wasn't symptomatic for some time, I was on a a treatment where I had to give myself a shot once a week. And I would just skip weeks sometimes because the the needle was huge and it hurt me and I didn't like it. And I was mad and I didn't want to do it. Right. So I think had I been the first five or six years a better patient, maybe I would be better off now. With that being said, when I was diagnosed, there was like two medications you can be on. Now there's maybe 12. So they are making strides in in disease modifying things. But at this point, I mean, look, 17 years in and I'm still independent and, and walking and working and driving and mothering and wifing and friending and all those things. Um, could it be better? Sure. But now my hope lies in like stem cell stuff and, and the future because I do still work from time to time, not as regularly as I would like, but it's not, it's very hard to 
completely relax into a role when, like, you're worried about your physicality. Sure. So it's, like, this place where, like, I don't want to stop acting, but, like, I also don't want to do it if I'm not going to be my best. And I've had, fortunately, um, the past few things that I've done, directors just be like, I don't care. I'm going to shoot around it. I'm going to do this. And I actually just did a role on Magnum P.I., where I might go back again, and they actually gave the role MS for me. Oh, nice. Yeah, which was right. cool. And it's Awareness. not something I always need to have to do, but I said, I was like, actually, I realized there's not really many people with MS on programs, you know? So it is. It's awareness, and it's a it's a group of people that are represented, me being one of them. And, you know, I I as I said, I'm not giving up, and I hope that there's, you know, a better future for me with that. Thanks for going there. Yeah. So have you, this this bothers me, um, (laughs) have you watched The Sopranos end to end? No. Still? No, still. Okay, so I read that you were working through Ray Donovan with your husband. Yeah. And that after you had completed that, the two of you would start The Sopranos together. Has that happened yet? No. We had a baby. And as you know, when you have a little one, then like all TV watching goes out the window. Um, But we binged Ray Donovan while I was pregnant. And it did. It reminded me so much of Sopranos in the way that just felt like so cinematic. And like each episode was just so important. And each role was so important. And everyone was so good. And the writing was so beautiful and I cared so much about every, like I hated people, but I love them. Like it just, it was great. And I, it was the first time I felt like I could have a perspective. I was like, oh, I kind of get how people felt about Sopranos, how I feel right now about Ray Donovan. Interesting. Um, are you going to watch it with him? Ha, I would ha, love to. Has your I husband think, watched it? Did, did, no, had you watched he was it too before? young. He's eight okay. years younger than me, okay. but he was too young, but he... I've I've seen the first two of every season because that's where our premieres would always be the first two episodes. And I obviously saw the last one. And I've seen bits and pieces here and there. Like, import, the, I watched the whole first season. I definitely watched every episode of the first season. But after that, I don't know. I'm a very self-conscious person. So, like, I don't yeah. love watching myself. Um, I don't know why. I just had a great, this is totally an aside, I just had a great meta- podcast idea jamie binging the sopranos and parsing the show as a podcast with your husband it's not a bad idea oh man that would be crazy not a bad idea um so what did you think of the ending i thought it was perfect i did um i can give you my opinion of what it meant this this is like not insider info this is just like a genuine like opinion So I feel like the way that last scene was edited where the family is kind of going about their normal life, they're having a normal meal, but Tony's clocking everyone around him. And we as an audience feel this tension of these like potential threats to his, him and his family. The whole show, that's all it is. It could have been edited, the the whole show could have been edited that way. That was their life. They made the choice to be in denial. They made the choice to just kind of keep living, understanding that this could happen at any moment. And whether that was the ending where it went to black and he was gone or it happened 10 years later, it's going to happen. Like someone was going to come after him. His life was going to end. It was going to be tragic. It was going to be at a moment, you know, where you would never expect it. 
And so, I mean, I understand that they had that scene with him and Bacala where he talked about, like, I think it just goes, everything just goes to black. On the boat. So, yes, I think his life ended right then. But if it didn't, I thought it was just a beautiful way to just say, look, the, here are these people. This is, this is who you spent all this time with all these years. This was their life. This was their choices. And this is what's going to happen. Well said. Thanks. Um, <laughs> did Meadow actually go through the door at Holston's? Nope, we cut. You and c- they weren't there when I filmed my thing. So you were by yourself. We filmed different days. Yep. Interesting. And you had no sense of what was happening. You just know the script is what the script is. It it's out there. It didn't say cut to black. Okay. It said fade to black. Meadow walks in. Tony looks at her. Fade to black. Now, the parking the parking issues in real life, I'm sure you're a great parker. I am fantastic. Um, was that part of the yes was that part of the thing or was that ad-libbed it felt like no it was they they want it's actually difficult to park incorrectly yeah (laughs) so that was um that was actually the very last thing shot of the show ever was me parking and running in like that was like there was kegs of beer for the crew like that was the end 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 the last thing that was ever shot um and it took a while like to but now after seeing it like the final show edited, I understand what they were doing. It was building tension and frustration, obviously, for people watching, being like, oh, what's going to happen? Like, Meadow, get in there. Don't go in there. All those types of things. Um, That was clearly his vision all along. I've always wondered if you actually made eye contact. No, we weren't there. there. But he had, like, obviously a sticker, and I had my, like, piece of tape that, Of course, look here. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, my feeling, and I'm working through the show with my co-hosts, and like we're getting, we literally endlessly do stories about. We get all these questions about takes and opinions, and everything is conjecture, and everything is speculative and ambiguous. That's the whole beauty of the show mm-hmm. is the ambiguity. But I feel like it's a perfect. The way it ended is actually a perfect opening for a Meadow sequel because I feel very strongly that Meadow was the the holder of the keys of that castle when everything was over, much more than AJ. Um, And so that was left that we never see what you see. And obviously something potentially bad happens to the, your, your family members inside the restaurant, but like there's this meadow looming large Mm. conversation. So that's cool. You know, I don't know, you know, like, I think there were a couple ideas thrown around about her and like what she was going to be doing the last couple of seasons and it never really panned out. Um, and to be honest, I mean, I'm self-critical, but I don't think I was doing my best work the past the last couple of years because of all the stuff I was going through, like, yeah. personally. Um, but I was obviously bolstered by amazing people and amazing writing, but... Um, Were you ready for the show to be over? I mean, look, we filmed for 10 years. Yeah, well, on and off. Like, there was, yes. a, there was, like, there was like, a two-year window yep. between... Yeah. Uh... Yes and no. I was ready for something new. I think I was feeling frustrated that I wasn't working as much as I wanted to be, like, on the show. But it was also, like, the best job in the world, and I loved everybody so much. And it was like school. Like, you you had your break, and then you knew you were going to pick back up. And it was the security that we all had that was amazing. But I was also 26 and, you know, kind of ready for try something else and try something new. So... I think there were moments where I was kind of like ready to see what else was out there for me in this industry. Um, But also really bummed because I knew that um, I was part of something super special and there's 
good chance it might not ever happen again. Yeah, I mean, this the whole lightning in a bottle conundrum, yeah, you know? exactly. I read that you said uh, that James Gandolfini's funeral felt like an episode of mm-hmm. the show. Can you parse that? Mm-hmm. Um, so every season, like, you would do your fitting for the year, kind of, to see where your body was at, whatever, and you would have a rack of black clothes, just knowing, like, we're going to have a lot of funerals to go to this year, you know? When he passed away, I was seven months pregnant, and HBO was actually having a plane go from L.A., so I was able to hop on that plane because commercial airlines wouldn't fly me with how far along I was. And it was—I hadn't seen—I had seen Jim— in March of that year. He passed away in July, June or July. So I had just seen him in March. I had told him I was pregnant. I had seen a bunch of the guys. But other than that, I really hadn't seen people or talked to them other than Robert in a long time. And walking into that cathedral, first of all, it was like fit for a king. The amount of people that were there, the setup, the the space, it was overwhelming. Where was the funeral? On the Upper West Side in a church, it was enormous. And um, walking in, and they had the Sopranos family in the viewing room with his family. And we each were able to kind of get a moment at his casket. Um, And, you know, David Chase was there, and Brad Gray was there, and, like, everyone from HBO. And, like, there was a line of people waiting to get in. And they let all of us in first, kind of, like— his family and like his Sopranos family and um, just seeing Edie and and everyone dressed in black and like me being pregnant out to here it was just like everyone was like looking at each other and crying and being like we've done this so many times like what like this is real life now like this is it feels strange it feels scary it's sad like what what's happening and David spoke, a couple of people spoke at the funeral, and it was beautiful. And I remember sitting there feeling like, like, this is it. There was always the possibility of people talking about a movie or whatever, and it was just like, you know what, this is it. Because he was the sun, and we were just kind of all the planets around him, and, like, the center of our universe is gone of this Sopranos world. Um... It was it was the most surreal moment of my life, truly, truly, truly. And then going to the restaurant after, I mean, HBO paid for the whole thing from what I understand, and going to the restaurant after and being with his family and and all of us, and these, it was like almost like the same thing we would do at like premieres or Christmas party. He would throw the Christmas party every year. He would pay for it, and all the cast and crew would be there, and it was just all those same people that we hadn't seen in two or three years, but like here we are, but it's for Jim. You know, it was, it was, um, it was really hard. Was a sequel, if you had to use a sports analogy, like, was a sequel on, like, the 20-yard line? Was no. it on the 10? Was it just, like, I a I mean, floated- at least from what, I, I never heard anything. I never heard anything. I think it was always, like, if David or Jim won it. But I really think that Jim, he put so much in work into being Tony. And he just was done, you know? Like, I, I think— um, you know, he really wanted to, same with all of us, like, see what else was out of course, there nothing and lasts do other forever. things. Yeah. yeah. When you when you read in the very beginning, um, like, pre-pilot, did you do any reads with him? 
Before I got the part? Yeah. Mm -mm. Okay. I'm just curious. I've asked a few other people that I've talked to on the pod about, um, like, was he Tony? Like, did he, was he in the zone with the character then? Or did he kind of feel his way through it? Did it take a little while to kind of, you know, become, because he's obviously, you know this better than anybody. He's a very different person off camera than he is on camera. He worked his butt off. He worked his butt off to prepare. And, like, there were moments, like, obviously when Tony was going to ever have, like, a really, like, rageful moment or anything that was kind of out of character for Jim, he took his moments to kind of get there. But other than that, I mean, as far as I can remember, I mean, it was just, you know, snapping in and out like all the rest of us did. Right. After, it's just, yeah. It's, a, it's, it's routine. Just, it just— it was, it's you know, your, there the was zone. a way he carried himself when he became Tony. There was a way he breathed when he became Tony that I believe he worked very hard at before so that he could just kind of easily step into it when he was there. Yeah, like the scene I'm thinking of with you is when uh, when Eric Scatino, your friend, gets his car taken away and mm-hmm. Tony tries to give it to, to Meadow. Me. Go ahead. You want that Tony there now? You go right ahead, but I'm not giving it back. I'm going to take that car, I'm going to sell it to Pussy, and then I'm going to buy clothes and food and shoes and CD players and all the rest of the shit that I've been buying since the day you were born. Everything this family has comes from the work I do. All right, Tony, that's enough. A grown man made a wager. He lost. He made another one. He lost again. End of story. So take that high moral ground and go sleep in a fucking bus station if you want. He went from zero to a hundred in like three seconds. Yeah, yeah. Um, just, I mean, he does that over and over again. Just powerful stuff. Yeah. So uh, Vincent Curatola, who played Johnny Sack, mm-hmm. was the one who told you, right? Mm-hmm. Is that is that true? What yeah. were you, what were you doing when you first heard the news, and and why was it Vincent? So I was home in LA. My husband was playing baseball at the time, and he was here for All Star break. He happened to be at our home, and his mom and his dad and my mom were in our house. It was like a very weird moment that Universe. everyone was with me. And I saw Vince was calling, and I picked up. I was like, hey, Finny, how are you? And he was like, hey, honey. He's like, how are you doing? I'm like, okay. He's like, you're very pregnant, right? I was like, yeah. And he's like, okay, I need you to sit down. I have to tell you something. And I was like, okay. And he's like, we lost Jim. And I couldn't, I couldn't wrap my brain around it. I kept saying, I don't understand what you're saying. And he's like, we've lost Jimmy. And I said, what is, I don't, what does that mean? I don't understand what you're saying. And he said, Jim died yesterday. And I just, I mean, I broke down and he said, um, I, I'm going to call Robert now. Um, because Jim and Vinny and Steve Shrip and them all stayed kind of tight. Who, yeah, who, who is James Gandolfini closest with? He was close with, with um, Steve and Vinny and Michael and Stevie. Like, they were kind of like a tight crew. Because uh, they would do, like, a lot of appearances together, too, still post-Sopranos and stuff. I'm not quite sure how it all trickled down, but I think I speak to Vince every once in a while. And so I think it was like, who's going to call Jamie and Robert? And Vince was like, I'll do it. Okay. type of thing. Um, and I remember I w- had my moment about it and then I waited about 15 minutes and I called Robert and he just picked up the phone and crying. We just sat on the phone crying, like no words for a long time, a long time. And yeah, I mean, I think it was a shock. I mean, cause I had just seen him like two months before and he looked great and he was happy and 
we were all together a year before at his wedding. And, you know, it was just, it was mind-blowing. Favorite James Gandolfini memory? Mm, when we shot the college episode, for sure. It was Meadow's first big episode. I remember when we would have our read-throughs, he would kind of sit at the head of the table. And I remember walking in, he was like, Jamie, you're going to sit at the head this time. This is your episode. And I was like, okay. That's awesome. And, um... Just, I remember being in the car with him and doing, when I asked him if he was in the mafia. Were you guys on location for Mm -hmm. that? We weren't in Maine, but we were in some rural parts of like Jersey and stuff. And, um, but like far enough away, we were staying at a hotel a couple hours from the city. And um, I just, and my mom was with me still on set. I mean, I was 17 years old. Um, He was just so helpful I remember after a take and the, the director's like okay great let's move on and I kind of just like sat there and he was like are you done and I was like what do you mean he's like do you want another take and I was like I don't know he said we got it and he's like but you can ask for another one like you have a say in this like you if you feel inside you like you have more to give like tell them right now and I was like really and he was like he just we had a lot of moments like that because you know to have three or four days of filming just us uh it was a really special yeah. time that i treasure no you totally crushed that episode you you held you held your own <laughs> and you were so young and it was, so young. it was amazing well he he gives you like he's like this he's this actor where like if you just look in his eyes for an like a second longer than is comfortable to look somebody in the eye you just like you trust him and he really just taught me to trust myself and my scene partner and he you know, unbeknownst to him, probably, like, really just gave me a lot. It's so interesting you mentioned his eyes because the whole thing, the whole dichotomy is, you know, he does these awful things in his life, but whenever he's in Melfi's office and he just looks at her, he just feels like everything's going to be okay. You want to hug him. And, and you feel bad for him. Yeah, yes. you literally sympathize with him to the very end. And there's there's a faction of whether he's a good dad or a bad dad on the show. And um, obviously, you take your pointers from ev- the good and the bad from I everybody. I think he was a good dad. Thank you for saying that. So you're in my camp. Um, one of my other co-hosts thinks the opposite. But it's, uh, he did, like, his life circumstances circumstances were what they were, you know? He was born into that life. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, I feel like he really would have taken a bullet for Meadow and AJ. Oh, my um, God, on yes. More than once, on more yes. than one occasion. And, and his wife. And his wife. But I think he loved the kids more. Of course. Um, he was think, in love with his children. I think Meadow was number one. And uh, more than 50% of the Melfi sessions, which is my favorite part of the show, which is why I keep going back to it, mm-hmm. because something about that dynamic is... Well, that uh, was the whole hook of the show in the beginning well it's just it's hypnotizing because you learn something she teaches him about something outside of his universe and then he goes and he applies it Mm -hmm. to his universe incorrectly sometimes but then he like brings it home and you know she just kind of like dispenses all this wisdom and then he pushes back and the dynamic between the two of them he spends a lot of it talking about meadow and a lot of it talking about aj and how he wants them to be out of this life Mm -hmm. and doing other things and doing better things so most dads aren't like that, you know, whether you are on the right. right side of the tracks or you're on the wrong side of the tracks. I think so. that's what made the audience still love him. Of course. Absolutely. If without the kids, he was just another mobster you didn't care about. And the, ki- the, kids, were the, the kids were so integral. I mean, he took his daughter to colleges, like drove her around. And, like, he, and he went to all of Meadows recitals. Yeah. And, you know, like a lot of dads even and today. And would tear up. And would tear up. And a lot of dads don't do that even today. Yeah. As, as you know, parachute as everybody yes. is. Or, yes. What is it? Propeller? Is it parachute? Uh, a helicopter? Helicopter. I, I call my husband a helicopter dad. Um, 
What can you say about David Chase? Any, any stories, a favorite moment? David is brilliant. I respect him so much. Um, him and I never got close. Uh, I always felt like he didn't like me, to be quite honest. I don't know if I've ever said that out loud. Um, but at the very last SAG Awards, which was the last award show that we were going to be at when the show was ending, because it would always be like Emmys, Golden Globe, SAGs, Emmys, Golden Globe, SAGs. So it was the last hurrah. It just so happened that he was at the end of the table with his wife and I was at the end of the table at the time with my boyfriend and no, everyone else like hadn't trickled in to be at our table. And I just got up and I walked up to him and I said, you know, David, I just want to thank you. Because obviously what the show has done for me professionally as an actress is a given, but the sh- what the show has given me personally, you know, far exceeds that because I've been through a lot in these 10 years. And it was the one constant thing I had in my life other than my family. Like this job that I had to go back to and these people and the support. And they loved me no matter what I weighed no matter if I was sick or not, if I was married or divorced and all the crazy things that I went through from 16 to 26, um, I just appreciate this opportunity that you gave me. And he cried. And he cried and he gave me a hug. And it was probably the realest moment we ever had together. And it was special and I'll treasure it. Um, And I remember his daughter telling me like the next day or the next time I had seen her, she's like, that really meant a lot to my dad. And I was like, well, I meant it. It was just this moment. I hadn't planned it. I wasn't thinking of saying it to him. But we were just across like this long day at table. And I was just like, fuck it. I'm going to tell him how I feel right now because I don't know if I'll ever see him again. You can't see this, but I'm crying inside. <laughs> that's amazing. It was true. It was true. It, it, the show, maybe that's why like it's not that important for me to watch it because I had like so much experience like personally and I needed the time to kind of really like live with that. And now I can watch it and be like, you know, home videos kind of thing, sure, you know, and maybe sure. appreciate the story and really watch the show. Well, that's that's what it is for me. Like my it's so much about him uh, than it is anything else, because for me, the reason I even started this project was what he did was like an exercise in execution. Mm. And that to me is something really special. Like he he. Like you said in the beginning, nobody wanted to make it, but he persisted. Not only did he make it, but if you go back and you watch it, and I hope you do, and I hope we can do this little meta podcast thing, but it is very, it is so smartly edited. Yeah. And the use of music, the song mm. choices. Well, he's so into music. Music is very important it's to him. It's so evident. It is an extra, and I've been saying this since I started doing this, it's an extra character in the show. Mm-hmm. And there's moments when he cues the music where it's just like, you know, press pause and go take a moment for yourself because it's like he's he's really meticulously considering every frame. And that's kind of what why I think even if you were on it, you were there, you have those memories. But like, it's such an homage to the work that you guys did, the way that he f- organized it, mm-hmm. you know? Thank you for telling that story. Yeah. His daughter's Michelle. Yeah. So I have some listener questions. Let me let me get to that before yeah. I, let me finish crying. Fun. <laughs> okay, so we have three listener-submitted questions, and I appreciate you indulging me. Um, who was your favorite boyfriend on the show? Finn. Um, and he's also one of my most favorite people. Yeah, well, I want to get there. Hold on. Okay. Were you and Hunter Scangarella friends in real life? Yeah. 
Yeah, kind of in the beginning when she was on the show um, in the first season a lot. Yeah, we were friendly. Okay. I think you already gave me the answer to this, but who are you closest with from the show now? Robert. Like how, One of my best friends. Like texting? Texting, like, calling. We're going to do a podcast together where we just talk about life with somebody else because him and I have like super deep conversations on the regular. We're... We are kindred spirits and bonded for life, and he's like a, a blood relative to me. Awesome. A quick lightning round to wrap things up. Okay. So I'm going to say a name, and you say the first thing that comes to your mind. This is fun. Okay. James Gandolfini. Heart. David Chase. Brilliant. Edie Falco. The best. Those two words, sorry. Michael Imperioli. Sweet. Lorraine Bracco. Hilarious. Will Janowitz. Hilarious. Oh, my God. Wait, Will. Um, just laughing. What's your—okay. What's your favorite show? And I'm emphasis on your because, like, it makes me think, like, what is, what is the favorite show of a person who was on what is considered the best show of all time? Handmaid's Tale. Okay. I think we talked about that mm-hmm. the first time we met. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite book? The Alchemist. Great book. What was the last thing you read? Does this include children's books? <laughs> sure. No, I, I need advice. I need tips. The body book to my son. There's a, there's, I don't, the human body. It's all about the different bones and the brain. And he, he's, he's five and he's fascinated. And by the way, I've learned so much reading it. Do you have those dinner mats with like the anatomy on them? And no. Like the, the, so they have mats. Oh, he would like that. You have the anatomy. Um, finally, any upcoming projects or things on your plate right now? You mentioned Magnum P.I.? Yes. I also shot a movie a couple of months ago called Appalachian. Um, my first time doing anything mob related and playing an Italian since Sopranos. I play a um, wife. And so it's a true story of um, this meeting of the mobs in this upstate New York town called Appalachian. And it was the biggest like mob bust up at the time. Where, But it was at the time when government wasn't recognizing the mob because they were paying everybody off. So it's this cool true story, and I play um, Josephine, Barbara, whose house hosts the party, and I'm loud and I'm obnoxious, and my husband and I yell at each other, and she's like this quintessential like mob wife, and I loved every second of it. It was so fun to play. Awesome. Is it out now? No, we just finished shooting it in September. They think they just closed editing, and I think he sold it, so we'll see. Nice. Jamie, this has been an honor and a privilege. I'm so happy we did this. Thank you. Thank you. 